we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classical Immigration Law Partners. Welcome to the final episode of our three-part series on H-1B visas. My name is Dev Patel, and I'm an associate here at Glasgow Immigration Law Partners. If you missed out on the first two episodes, please make sure to go back and listen to them. In this episode, we'll be talking about employees under the H-1B visa. With me for this episode, I'm happy to welcome back Bill Stock and Michelle Madera, partners here at Glasgow Immigration Law Partners and well-versed in corporations that use the H-1B visa to hire talent at their companies as well as alternative solutions for employees that may not be selected in the lottery process. Thank you again for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. There have been many procedural and substantive changes over the past year when it comes to filing H-1B petitions. Based on your practice and filings, what are some common issues that foreign employees are currently facing? Current H-1B employees are facing a lot of anxiety and concern around the H-1B program. They're hearing a lot of rumors about different things that are happening and trends in adjudication, um, which is just causing a general sense of anxiety. One thing that has changed for them is that prior H-1B petitions were previously given deference when being reviewed by USCIS, meaning if it's an extension of the same H-1B position with the same H-1B employer, and it was previously approved by USCIS, um, USCIS would defer to their prior decision and not really question that H-1B qualifications much, much further. Um, Recently, uh, USCIS revoked that deference policy, so every H-1B petition filed is being reviewed as though it's a new H-1B petition. This is part of the reason we're seeing such a high influx in requests for evidence um, for cases that were previously approved and they've been holding the same job for many, many years. So I know that's causing a lot of concern by um, employees regarding, um, you know, planning for their extensions and timing, because the the request for evidence process adds quite a bit of time onto the processing of their H-1Bs as well. In addition to that, um, you know, a lot of employees are concerned about travel, especially with the longer wait times for um, the H-1B adjudication process to complete. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that travel specifically in a little bit. Now, is there anything in particular these H-1B employees should be doing to prevent issues with their future filings, whether it be for their non-immigrant or immigrant visas? So, you know, the H-1B beneficiary himself really can't do too, too much because it is a H-1B filing by the employer um, to justify the job. However, the, the beneficiary can, you know, plan for travel plan for remaining in the U.S. for a longer period of time. Maybe let's get that process started a little bit earlier um, in order to accommodate those timing factors of the RFEs. I also think it's important for H-1B employees to be involved in the process with their employers. Uh, They are the ones who have the stake in it. And what we are seeing is that USCIS is much more likely to provide consequences to the H-1B employee even if it was the employer that caused the violation. So that means that if the employee knows his or her job is changing, if the employee knows that his or her location is changing, 
these are all different uh, things that must be reflected with a new H-1B uh, filing. And so employees should really be making sure that their employers are following all of these rules. It's their status which is going to be the problem if these rules are not complied with. In addition to that, it's also important for the employee to make sure that all the facts that the attorneys and their employer have are correct and accurate. You know, we've been seeing an increase in USCIS and Department of State um, share information based on the visa applications, the H-1B petition, green card filings, and all of that information. It's really important that the employee engage in the process and make sure that all that information is aligned and accurate with their backgrounds. Remember, too, that there's a lot more third-party verification of the information in the petition. So it's not at all uncommon for an H-1B employee to receive a site visit from USCIS where an immigration officer is coming to talk with the employee and to make sure that the employee is familiar with the information that's in the petition. Uh, it can happen that uh, if an employee thinks of his or her daily job in a particular way, but that's not exactly the same way it was articulated in the H-1B petition, that the H-1B employee can wind up having problems. A, a great example of this was a recent case for a university that we work with. There was a researcher whose work was primarily in the field of geography, but uh, most of it, uh, as far as the employee was concerned, was involved uh, in, in creating these sophisticated computer models. So when the USCIS site investor came and talked to the person, the person talked about the computer models that they were developing and the programming that goes into those computer models, and the site investigator never understood that the computer modeling was really part of this geographic research uh, and wound up uh, requesting uh, that the petition be revoked, uh, saying that that uh, it had incorrectly classified the job. Now, we were able to answer that and explain that, in fact, um, you know, computer modeling is very much a part of research in, in many fields, including in this geographical field, but it just goes to show the importance of the H-1B employee having reviewed the H-1B petition uh, and being familiar with the contents of it if this information is going to be verified either by a consular officer by a CBP officer during travel or by a site visit officer uh, as uh, the H-1B goes on. Well, based on all these changes and the current landscape for the adjudication of the H-1B petitions, should these employees be hesitant to change jobs or accept higher positions within their current employers? And if so, what advice would you provide an H-1B employee who is currently looking to change jobs or move up? I'm really reluctant to tell H-1B employees that they shouldn't have their talents used in the most effective way by their employers. Uh, I also think that H-1B employees have, a, you know, need to take opportunities to uh, improve their careers as those opportunities come up. I think people have to be aware of these uh, uh, kinds of uh, restrictive attitudes that are affecting adjudications, but. I will say that uh, you know I've been doing this for more than 25 years, and there have been times when there have been restrictive adjudications uh, environments. There have been times where it's been more liberal. Uh, people need to move and change jobs at all of those times. So there's nothing that's happening today that I think can't be overcome by good lawyering and by good cooperation between the uh, attorney and the uh, employer and the employee. So my advice would be to be thoughtful about new jobs and 
and about how those are going to affect the H-1B filing, about how those are part of a long-term strategy to get the H-1B employee into the green card status as soon as possible and in the best possible category, uh, but really to take those opportunities where they're presented uh, anytime that they can. Speaking to this, have you seen any changes with H-1B portability rules? There aren't any changes to the rules, but I think people are being much more careful about using H-1B portability. If you're an employee, you do have the right to begin working for the new H-1B employer just as soon as that new employer filed a petition for you. But if you're the employee, you also have very high stakes if you leave your H-1B employer before you have another H-1B petition secured. So we are having a lot more conversations with prospective employees as they begin to move from employer to employer uh, about how they want to make sure that the H-1B petition is approved before they come and join the new employer. I can't say that that's a bad thinking on their part. I think you do need to be a bit more conservative in using the portability rules. While that said, I think, you know, assuming that you're moving to a well-respected employer that has a good track record of H-1B approvals, there's still less risk in doing uh, in using the H-1B portability uh, than there uh, even sometimes may be in using premium processing. Uh, premium processing seems to attract more than its fair share of requests for evidence. So uh, sometimes we're counseling employees that their risks are actually better to use portability to begin working right away, uh, but to be more confident that while the case will take longer to decide, it's more likely to get an approval without an RFE. What about issues with off-site work or working remotely? Have we seen an increase in scrutiny in this area, or is there anything that employees can do to prevent potential issues with this? Yeah, so that's a great question. We always need to know about changes in work location, including um, ability to work from home or work remotely or off-site from another location. These all need to be addressed in the H-1B filing and on the labor condition application. So it's really important that the employee and the employer let us know about any of that information. And sometimes those are accommodations made um, by a manager and it's never really floated up to the um, immigration personnel within the company. So it's important to just let um, everybody know so we can advise accordingly. Generally speaking, we haven't seen an increase in scrutiny of those types of cases, but I will say that, you know, if it comes up, there is a greater likelihood of a request for evidence. Um, usually it's just to show exactly what the work arrangement is, um, if it's a, a company office offsite, or if it's like a shared workspace, in order to ensure that the employer-employee relationship is still going to exist. Um, even if the employee is working out of their home or out of another shared workspace. Sometimes USAIS scrutiny in this area can be a little bit humorous. We recently had a case for uh, a person who lives uh, in the next state over here in Philadelphia. They live down in Newark, Delaware, uh, and immigration requested why they were living in a different state if they were allegedly working in Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, so one of the things we sent to them was the train schedule for the train line that runs between Newark, Delaware, and downtown Philadelphia that thousands of people use to commute on every day. Uh, just be aware that the current adjudication environment may create some uh, scrutiny where uh, it's not really warranted. Now, what about employees that are working for multiple employers? Have we seen any issues arise in that area, especially with the new trends and the adjudication of the petitions these days? 
it is important for H-1B employees to realize that their work is uh, only allowed to be done for a, an H-1B petitioner who holds their petition. So if they're going to work for multiple employers, they do have to have concurrent H-1B petitions for each of those employers. It's also really important for H-1B employees to make sure that those are concurrent with each other, that they've notified consulates as they travel, uh, and that they're aware of the fact that they need to show those two H-1B petitions. But with that said, those aren't really different or new rules. I think our concurrent H-1B petitions are you know, being approved at similar uh, rates, uh, nearly all of them, uh, as for uh, the single employer petitions. So we, we hear a lot of questions regarding H-1B foreign nationals here in the U.S. They want to start their own business or invest in other companies. What advice can we give those employees? So I'll say a couple of things. The first is that if you're talking about entrepreneurship, investing in a company that's going to uh, uh, you know, begin to provide a product, uh, that has to be very carefully thought through. Your business plan has to be reviewed with an immigration lawyer before you consider doing it. Uh, somewhat related, though, are H-1B employees who might decide to make passive investments. For example, you might uh, uh, buy a house uh, and rent it out. Uh, I think you have to be aware that it is not illegal for an H-1B employee to have passive investments of any kind. But you have to look out for the possibility that you would need to actively manage that investment. So, for example, if you're going to have to rehab the house yourself, uh, that's going to potentially be an issue if you're uh, having work authorization with an H-1B that's limited to very specific kinds of employment. Um, so that's generally what I advise. If you're going to put your money into real estate or if you're going to put your money into a small business, make sure that you don't take any kind of active role in the management of that business uh, and be aware that it might expose you to some scrutiny later in the green card process uh, as to where that income uh, from those activities came from. What about individuals that started a business and they wanted to employ some of their family members or possibly even petition for themselves? I think it is possible, but uh, H-1B employees need to be aware that there must be an employer that is independent of the owner of the company. So if it's a sole proprietorship, a company where the H-1B is the only owner and calls all of the shots, the immigration service is going to likely not approve that H-1B uh, on account of the fact that the employer and the employee aren't distinct from one another. Um, However, if the H-1B employee uh, creates a company and involves some other people, maybe minority investors or maybe a, a board of directors, oftentimes we can show a level of uh, employer-employee relationship, even though the employee may have significant control over a startup business. When it comes to family members, I think you know each family member is going to need his or her own work authorization. I think it's uh, important to realize that, again, the sole ownership by a family member may create questions around the employer-employee relationship. And, uh, you know, in prior times, this might not have come up so much just because the Immigration Service didn't demand as much documentation from the employee um, when looking at an H-1B case. But uh, today, with the Immigration Service demanding tax returns and financial documentations, uh, many times these connections between family members are going to be much more apparent and therefore are more likely to be questioned. So, you know, uh, these are still possible, but they really do need careful planning uh, along with Immigration Council and Business Council uh, in order to make them work. 
So what are some other immigration options for individuals whose H-1B petitions don't get selected in a lottery process this year? Sure. So there's um, a few different options. Um, the first thing we'd want to obviously review is the person's country of citizenship um, and also country of birth. There could be options for people who are citizens of um, other countries. For instance, for people from Canada and Mexico, the TN is an option for certain occupations. For people from Australia, the E3 is a great option, which is very similar to the H-1B. Um, and for people from Chile and Singapore, the H-1B1 is, a, is another option um, for them, which is, again, very similar to the H-1B. But for people um, who don't have an option based on um, a, their country's citizenship, we can also look at... Um, uh, the O1 category, if they are far enough along in their career that they've sort of developed this, um, that they're uh, an expert um, and have extraordinary ability in their field of expertise, um, we'd have to obviously review their resumes with them, review the, their cases very thoroughly um, to ensure that they meet that high level um, of expertise in order to, to demonstrate that they have that extraordinary ability. But that is one option, um, especially as we see people in, in very unique fields. Um, those tend to uh, lend themselves nicely to the O1. It's also um, a great option is an L1. If it is a multinational company um, and the person has worked abroad for that company for one year or has the flexibility to go abroad to work for that company for one year, then they can consider coming back to the U.S. Um, in an L1 capacity. Now, the L1 is for managerial roles, whether it be personnel management or functional management, or there's the L1B, which is for a specialized knowledge role. Um, so so that's, that's a nice option, especially for large multinational companies. There's um, also an option we, we talked about in an earlier podcast, which is getting a little bit of additional scrutiny, so it might not be the best option, but there's always the option for somebody to go back to school. So if it's somebody who's completed a bachelor's degree program and wants to get a master's from a U.S. university, that's a great option, um, and it would give them a little bit of better chances in a cap. Um, but they could also consider, if they finished a master's degree, going for a second master's degree. Um, and some schools offer curricular practical training um, right away as an option so they can continue working, provided it's related to what their studies are and they are actually going to school and doing all the things they're supposed to be doing on an F1. Um, but that, that gives them a little bit more flexibility as well. And uh, one thing you didn't mention when we were talking about country of origin is uh, that there's the E1 and the E2 visa. So there's a couple of different ways that you could do that. Uh, you could use that uh, sort of creatively. The the key with an E1 or an E2 is that you have a nationality which matches the nationality of the employer that you're trying to go work for. So if you're a French national, you would want to work for a French-owned company, for example. Uh, but there are many times people who are eligible for another country's citizenship. So many South Americans, for example, are eligible for Spanish citizenship. So even if their country doesn't have a treaty, they want to explore whether or not they could become a Spanish citizen uh, and therefore use the Spanish treaty. Um, 
similarly, there are even countries where one can acquire citizenship through investment. So our firm works with people who want to make an investment in those countries, acquire that country's citizenship, and then use the e-visa for a company that they own, for example, um, if you're looking at entrepreneurial options. So you know, none of these are ideal, but they do provide some long-term planning options for at least some people. Now, lastly, I wanted to get back to a topic Michelle had mentioned earlier, um, travel. What exactly do employees need to know about travel while being on these immigrant visas? Most important when you're considering travel is just being aware that it provides a direct requirement for interaction with government officials. That may be nothing more than having to talk with a CBP inspector uh, at the time that you come back into the United States. Uh, but being prepared for uh, all of your eligibility for H-1B status to be questioned is important. Uh, so, for example, even if you already have an H-1B visa in your passport, uh, you want to make sure that you have evidence that you're still employed by that petitioner. And if there's anything about your travel plans which is at least potentially inconsistent with the H-1B filing, you need to be prepared to answer questions about it. What am I talking about there? Well, if your airplane is landing in Boston and you're going to be traveling from Boston to Chicago, but your H-1B position says that you're working in Atlanta, you're going to need to be explained, able to explain why that is. Uh, maybe you've got a family commitment in Chicago and you have a later domestic flight from Chicago to Atlanta. But you should be prepared for those questions and be ready to answer them. Similarly, if you're aware that your H-1B petition doesn't cover the location that you're flying into, uh, be aware that CBP may very well be on the lookout for that. Uh, the other big thing that we tell people about traveling is to make sure that you know your passport validity because Customs and Border Protection will limit your H-1B status to no longer than the duration of your passport. So you might have traveled out of the country, and before you traveled, immigration had granted you a three-year H-1B. But you come back and your passport expires in two months. Well, as of that date, your H-1B status expires in two months and needs to be extended. Merely extending your passport is not enough to extend your H-1B status in that scenario. Finally, I would say that anyone who travels and needs a non-immigrant visa needs to be aware that uh, first, there may be delays in obtaining an appointment. You should make sure that before you plan your travel, you're aware of how long it takes to get a visa appointment in your country. You should look at third country options for obtaining a non-immigrant visa. And you should be prepared that many times these visas are referred for additional administrative processing. That's sometimes quite routine and only takes a week or so. Sometimes it takes much longer than that, even on what otherwise appears to be a routine case, because the immigration uh, consular officer has decided to verify the information uh, in the H-1B petition. So the State Department will call the employer and will say, are you expecting a person named X who says that they work for company Y that says they have a contract with you? Uh, if that uh, end user doesn't know that you're coming, they may not know to answer the question correctly, and that may cause you to be delayed in your visa application. So you know, be aware that you need to make sure there are uh, uh, mechanisms in place for having those questions answered uh, for not only the employer you're working for, but also the end client that you're working for. Uh, and obviously, uh, tra employees uh, with travel questions, you know, our, our, our good advice is always, always check with your HR, check with your lawyer before you make your travel plans so that you can get up-to-date information about any issues that we're seeing lately.
Bill Mitchell, thank you as always for your time in answering these questions. You can listen to additional episodes of our podcast on iTunes or listen online at classicallaw.com. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.